If you would, why don't you pray with me? Father God, we just want to stop and pause before we get into your word, Lord. We want to thank you for being a good and gracious king to us. Father, for being a God who is so separated from sin, so holy that you can't even be in its presence, and yet you look upon sinful men and you're moved with compassion because of that situation it's left us in. And so, Father, you, you sent your Son and you wrapped him in flesh so that as a man, he could carry our sorrows, he could bear our grief, he could taste death for every one of us, and yet remain the spotless Lamb of God. And Father, it's a marvel as we consider that great work, the incarnation of the cross. Father, how You could be so close, so tender, so compassionate, and yet undefiled. You redeem us, Father. You redeem us and You reform us into Your own image. Father, we are... We're so thankful that the work is yours and not ours. Thank you for redeeming us out of the pit. Thank you for having compassion on the situation and and misery that our own sinful choices caused. Father, you didn't stand far off. You drew near to us. So Father, help us now in your word, draw near to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've learned as I grow as a Christian to appreciate certain theological uh, aspects of various denominations. Um, I myself didn't really, uh, we, we started when I was young, grew up in a Lutheran church, but I honestly, I, I circled A's and E's and my dad would give me the bulletin and tell me to find the letters of my name. So I, I don't remember anything about it. Um, and so my real, my introduction into Christianity was a non-denominational church and um, while I'm, I know where I stand theologically on issues now, especially in regard to uh, some charismatic churches, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily line up with them theologically, but I do appreciate something about them that we're going to talk about this morning. They're not afraid to feel, and they're not afraid to express emotionally their faith in God. Conservative evangelicalism needs a healthy dose of that, I think. Because while we, we may parse the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures and study the Scriptures and rightly divide the Scriptures, so often it's done from a distance emotionally. And uh, I understand as a pastor, when you read literature, you, you read church history, religious experience and religious emotionalism are, are very hard things to discern. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree with reasons uh, sometimes to be skeptical of emotions. Sometimes I do agree with the reasons to be skeptical. Um, as you know, I, I like to read. One of the, the first great awakening in America was largely under the influence of Jonathan Edwards' preaching. Powerful preacher, biblical preacher. Um, and, and, and the way he preached, he, he would simply read his sermon in a very monotone voice. But people were so convicted and came so heavily under the influence of God's Spirit that they would fall to the ground sometimes, crying out to him. After the, after the First Great Awakening, he wrote a book called The Religious Affections. 
And um, he actually, in that book, examines why or what hindered the Great Awakening from continuing. And at least in part, he credited religious emotionalism for kind of derailing that move of God. And I understand that. When religious emotions are what's driving truth in your experience, you're going to derail your faith. Emotions can very easily and quickly lead you astray. On the other hand, emotions are part of how God has made us. And in the traditional theological tradition that I've kind of come up from, I have seen them suppress emotions greatly. And I think almost equally to the detriment of our faith. Because what's happened is our faith has become this dry, stale, lifeless thing. Orthodoxy. Without passion. What we are after is truth. And we looked at last week, God, uh, we looked at the very personal aspect of the incarnation of Christ. That there's more to the incarnation than simply the atonement. The atonement was the pinnacle of why Christ came to be a man, so that he could be the substitute for men. What we considered last week was there's, there's a very real need that man has for men. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 2, when God said to Adam, pre-fall, pre-sin, it's not good for you to be alone, Adam. And we asked the question, why did God say that Adam was alone? He had perfect fellowship with God. It's because even in perfect fellowship, perfect sinlessness, man can't correspond to God. No one can. God is an absolutely unique being, and we cannot perfectly correspond to Him. Man, in a very real sense, needs men to correspond to. And that was so much of what the incarnation was about. When Christ came on the scene, it was God in flesh, so that man can now correspond through Jesus to both God and men and he to us. It's a beautiful study. I intended to preach something different this week, and about halfway through the week I changed course and started outlining this sermon, because I I was going to move on from evangelism, but I want to address something that I actually am convinced we need to consider, both at Waypoint as well as uh, some of our religious community. And that is, What role does emotions play in evangelism? There's so many times we're going to see in the Scripture that Christ, when He went to people, He went proclaiming the truth, the Gospel. But there's a phrase that's particular in the Gospels that says He was moved by compassion. He was moved toward them because of a compassion, a pity for their situation. And so, I want to consider the role of emotions attached to evangelism. Probably more specifically, I want to consider, as we ramp up evangelistic efforts, what place does our emotions have in the evangelist, not just in evangelism? And here's what I say. If we believe that we've been created in the image of God, I don't want to dare denigrate the emotional side of who we are as people. It's fundamental to who we are as people. I do want to understand our emotions in their right place. I teach an eighth grade worldview class, as I've said, and the way I explained it to them is this. Truth, if you think of a train, truth is the engine that drives the train, and emotions are the caboose. They don't lead. 
but they're part of the train still, and we need to consider them. I don't want to be left with a passionless faith and a cold heart toward those who are not in the faith. And if we don't consider this aspect of evangelism, I fear that when we evangelize, it will just be, even though we might be face-to-face with somebody, we might be worlds apart in that sense. Jesus would both preach the gospel to them and then he would endear himself to them. And that's very real. It's very powerful. So there's three things in Matthew 9. If you want to read with me beginning in verse 35, there's three things we're going to look at. Let me read the passage. This is Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, into his harvest. Three things, if you're taking notes, that I want to, I think this passage shows us is one, Christ teaches us how we ought to look at the lost, how we ought to view the lost. The second thing is that Christ teaches us how we ought to feel at that site. What kind of emotional response should be generated in a Christian as we look upon the lost? The third thing is Christ teaches us what we should then do with that feeling. And it's all right here in this passage. So the first point, Christ teaches us how we ought to look at the lost. Verse 36 says this, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I want to define these two words for us because as much as I like the ESV translation, I don't think the ESV really captures the force of what's written here in the Greek. The word harassed If you have, for instance, the King James Version, it translates it as fainted. But this word, it gives the idea of being distressed severely. The verb has a participle, which all that means is this, that they were continually in this harassed, fainted, distressed state. The second word is helpless. Literally, it's scattered, thrown down, cast down, prostrated. But what's important about this word is that it's an inward prostration. In other words, they are bowed down inwardly in their heart. We would say it today as these people are suffering severely from depression. Outwardly, they might put on a facade. You might not witness this. Inwardly, they are prostrate, depressed, harassed, and remember, a continual state. So Jesus doesn't simply look at their outward condition. Jesus, being both God and man, can pierce into their heart and recognize what's going on in the individual. These people who followed Him were lost. They were beat up. They were dejected. They were hopeless. They were leaderless, like sheep without a shepherd to help them. We studied shepherding, as I believe that's one of the most important aspects of any church. It's leadership. And the Bible over and over and over puts forth the idea of a shepherd as a biblical leader because the shepherd knows his sheep. He cares for his sheep. John 10, he lays his life down for his sheep if need be. 
He leads them to green pastures and water, Psalm 23. He cares for them. These people were harassed continually, depressed inwardly, and without someone to guide and lead them spiritually. They were directionless. What we see Jesus doing is going from town to town, according to verse 35. And everywhere He went, now this has every element of evangelism we've covered so far. Everywhere He went, what did He do? He taught in their synagogues. He proclaimed the gospel. Remember, evangelism isn't evangelism without proclaiming the gospel. But that's not all in evangelism that needs to be done. He also healed every disease and affliction. So what does Christ teach us concerning how we ought to look at people? Here's our application. We need to recognize that in this context, as well as today's context, first of all, people are religious people, but their religion is failing them. Every other religion in the world, you are forced to stand on your own righteousness. You are forced to work your way to God. In fact, it goes back to the original lie in the garden. When God gave Adam the one condition, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did Satan do? He came and he tempted him and he said, you know why God doesn't want you to eat of that tree? Because you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. The problem is this. When we start becoming the reference point for what is good and what is right, for what is evil, what is not evil, when we think we have that knowledge to determine absolutely this is right, this is wrong, then man becomes the measure of all things and not God. And we can very easily see, I told one of my professors in college, as he spoke, he was a secular humanist, and he started speaking of the history of secular humanism, and I had to correct him, I said, no, secular humanism started at the very beginning in the garden. That was the origins of secular humanism. Man becomes the measure. Man becomes the determiner of what's right and wrong. And when you look at the history of mankind, especially where we are today with the millennial generation, we are more confused than ever about what's right and wrong. We are more confused than ever about who we actually are as people, as we talked about last week. We don't even know how to answer the question, what is man? And not only that, we're battling more than ever depression. Suicides, hopelessness, fear. With all of our progress, supposedly under rejecting God and coming out from under that religious superstitions, we are more lost than ever. Religions, all self-righteous religions, all have an inward focus. I have to do good works to bring myself to God so that I might stand before Him. You are measuring your righteousness by what you can do. You are operating, if that's the case, under the same old lie that Satan deceived Adam and Eve with. You will never measure up, the Scripture says. That's why God said, don't go down that road, Adam. Don't go down that road. People are religious today, and yet they are more hopeless and without comfort than any time in history. Their religion cannot comfort them. These people in the text, as well as people today, have been failed by religious leaders, by government leaders, by parental authorities. 
Leadership has failed. These people were sheep without a shepherd. We look at the political climate today. It's a wreck. We would all agree. Why put our faith in man? The Old Testament has much to say about this concerning Israel. As they would cast off God, who would they then turn to? Egypt, save us. We do the same thing today. Leaders have failed. This has compounded the problem that people face today. It's added to the hopelessness. It's added to the frightened and disillusioned state that we as a country, especially in the West, have found ourselves in. These people were also suffering from various afflictions. Every disease, every affliction, Jesus hit. In fact, if you read back into chapter 9, I summarized all the things that Jesus encountered. He gives a general statement in verse 35, but in the rest of chapter 9 before this, he identifies specific things. Jesus healed a woman who suffered for 12 years from the issue of the flow of blood. He then goes into the ruler's house and raises his daughter from the dead. From there, he heals two blind men and he restores their sight. From there, he heals a demoniac who couldn't talk. Over and over and over, what does Jesus do? He encounters people who are afflicted in various ways. There's religious people whose religion has failed them. There's leaderless people because leaders have failed them. And they're suffering from various forms of affliction. And what does Jesus do? He teaches, He proclaims the gospel, and He weds Himself to their situation. So He teaches us through that how we, are, how we as people need to view people. Now we have a different angle somewhat from Jesus. Jesus entered this situation as a man, but He was a sinless man. You and I are not that. We can understand sin and the misery of it. We can understand the bitterness of being deceived and eating that fruit and it not proving or providing what it tempted us and said it would. We understand the bitterness of sin. And so as we look upon a lost world, we have an immediate connection with them. Even if it's not an issue of sin. How many of you today, and I don't want you to raise your hands, how many of you today come in here bowed down inwardly? How many of you suffer from hopelessness and depression? How many of you are suffering from some form of affliction physically? We know these. We've tasted these. We endure these. We ought to look upon mankind in that situation and understand where they are at. But secondly, Christ teaches us how we ought to feel at such a sight. And this is really where I want to emphasize this morning. Because as I said in my introduction, evangelical Protestant, evangelical conservative Protestantism has historically detached emotions from this point. We are very good at looking at a people group and standing afar off and dissecting them theologically in our churches dissecting the doctrine of original sin, dissecting and and parsing out what the fall exactly means. But what this passage teaches us, it says, you know, put all that aside for a minute and actually go put boots on the ground and have some kind of emotional response to it. It is such a dangerous thing 
to simply intellectually analyze this problem without letting your heart engage in the misery that's being produced in these people. Passage doesn't stop with Jesus perceiving and recognizing a truth. It's not an intellectual workout for Jesus. It says, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he sat down at his desk and started to write out a thesis. He started to outline his sermon to preach to his disciples. No, he had compassion. He was moved emotionally with it. As he saw the misery that these people were under, it invoked an emotional response. The ESV doesn't capture the force, the, the, the weight of this word. It just simply says he had compassion. Literally, he was moved with compassion. He didn't simply observe it. He didn't simply have sentiment which I think is where the church usually stops. We have a compassionate sentiment towards somebody's situation. No, it moved him. It went beyond intellectualism or sentimentality. He was moved by it. Everywhere in Scripture it testifies as God, being a compassionate God. Let me give you some references. Psalm 146, verse 8. This is the King James. It really captures it. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's full of compassion. Isaiah 49 gives one of the most beautiful metaphors of compassion in Scripture. God says this to Israel, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. In church, we can testify, women can forget their children. Right? How many are dropped off as infants? And the... The Lord says, even these mothers may forget their child. Yet what does God say? I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Compassionate. Lamentations 3.22 and 31. Let me read if you want to turn there real quick. Lamentations is such a good book to read because Jeremiah wrote it after God brought judgment upon Israel. But he can say in chapter 3, verse 22, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Literally, the compassions of the Lord never stop. His mercies never come to an end. And down in verse 31, the Lord will not cast off forever. But though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love, where He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. You see, if the Lord causes grief, it's for a good end. And He doesn't do it willingly. He does it for our good. In the New Testament, six times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, the phrase moved with compassion is used. Mark uses the phrase five times. In the Gospel of Luke, he uses it three times. In 1 John, if you want to turn to 1 John with me, John actually gives us the negative truth. He gives us a negative test for this same point in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 16 and 17, rather. Let's read both. By this we know love, he writes, that he laid down his life for us. He didn't just talk about his love for us. What did he do? He laid down his life for us. And what should we do? Lay down our lives for the brothers. Here's the negative test. If anyone has the world's goods 
and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Literally, the way that reads is, if he closes his heart, is how the ESV translates it, literally, if he closes the bowels of compassion, can God's love abide in him? When you look upon the misery of a brother, and the bowels of compassion inside of you are shut up, God's love isn't in you. That's the negative test of this. Galatians 2.20, Paul said it this way, He loved me and gave Himself for me. So what's the application of what Christ teaches us, how we ought to feel at the sight of a Christless crowd? The right response of any Spirit-filled Christian who looks upon a Christless crowd should be compassion and pity. When we as a church find, whether in ourselves or in the church in general, aversion to the situation of the lost, cynicism toward them, anger, indifference, a looking down upon them because of how foolish they've been, we're missing the heart of God in it. All those things might be true. But you know what? God has dealt with their sin on the cross. And He can always and forever extend compassion, pity, no matter how big we make a blunder of our life. He's moved with compassion. So often the church stands far off from the crowds who've soiled and drifted or dirtied themselves with sin. And yet we see just the opposite with Christ, who is pure righteousness. What does He do? He comes to them and joins without soiling His garments and yet meeting them in their misery. We've erred greatly in the church when we turn the Bible's teaching on sin, the fall of man, the fallen nature into just an academic pursuit. Because there's a very real heart of God behind these doctrines that moves him with pity emotionally. He does something about it. I like Matthew West's song, Do Something. You've probably heard it. He says this, I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now, thought, how'd we ever get so far down? And how's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven and I thought, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist at heaven and I said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. What's Matthew West saying to us there? We looked at the incarnation. What does God do in the incarnation? He sends Christ and comes to us. He goes to heaven, but what's He send? His Holy Spirit. To live in the church. And then what's He commissioned the church to do? Go. What is Christ's answer for a fallen world? To dwell within His church and go to them. But the church get so comfortable sitting in our chairs and analyzing the situation, we never go. Matthew West finishes his song saying this, I'm so tired of talking about how we are God's hands and feet, but it's easier to say than to be. Live like angels of apathy who tell ourselves, it's all right, somebody else will do something. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of life with no desire. I don't want a flame. I want a fire. I want to be the one who stands up and says, I'm going to do something. Move with compassion. 
Very rarely does intellectual understanding of these things move you to do something about it. Now I will say this, being moved emotionally without truth and understanding is equally as dangerous. But my focus today is, I think we're a biblically grounded church. And I think we need to feel more than understand. We understand truth. We need to feel the weight of it, the gravity of it. We need to be moved by the situation we find and see in people. The third point, Christ teaches us what we should do with that. We're told three, three things back in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus did in response to what He saw. We're told first, He taught in their synagogue. Second, He proclaimed the gospel to them. And then third, He healed the sick and the weak. Those three things ought to be done by the church. We need to go to them, teach them truth. It is the truth that will set them free. Specifically start by proclaiming the gospel. It's where all things start. Proclaim the gospel. But then join yourself to them in their distresses, in their afflictions. Tend to them. Remember what Jesus said separates the sheep from the goats in the end times? He doesn't mention their doctrine. What's he say? I was in prison and you came to visit me. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you tended to me. You see what Jesus is getting after? We can know all the doctrinal truth in the world. If we don't do something with it, it's useless. What separates the sheep from the goat is not what they necessarily knew. It's what they did with what they knew. It's absolutely imperative, church, that all the ministries, all the knowledge we may gain be wedded together with compassion, with pity, with love. I want to look at verse 37 and 38 because there's one thing that Jesus does tell the church we need to do. He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's the reality. Now, I want you to understand this. What is He saying? It's not bodies. There's not enough people. That's not what Jesus is getting after here when He says the laborers are few. Our churches usually are full of people. 38 says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. One, Jesus tells us to pray. He tells us to pray that the Lord send out laborers. Here again, the ESV doesn't capture the phrase send out as it's written. Literally, the phrase send out means to thrust or force someone out. Send out just kind of means, hey, could you go run an errand for me? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, you know what you need to pray the Lord will do? Throw the church out there to the world. <laughs> That's a different picture, is it not? Compel them to go. And He's talking to us. What will wake the church up to thrust them out and get off our knees here? Compassion. When you have an emotional response to the need of the world and you see the misery that is caused and you're compassionate with it, you go. I saw a couple different stories in the news this week illustrated this perfectly. And 
Oddly enough, they, they were similar accidents. One, an 11-year-old boy was trapped under a minivan. He got backed up and the minivan was on him and his parents are watching in horror. And the van came to rest upon the boy. His father and mother rushed to his side and began trying to pull him out, but he stuck. So the father calls out desperately, help, help. And people were already running to the scene to lift up this van and pull the son out. Similar example of a football player, big old stocky high school football player, sees his neighbor trapped under a car. He runs over and picks this car up and the neighbor's able to get out. And I thought to myself, you know, those parents didn't sit there as their son was trapped under the van and say, hmm, theologically what I need to do is I need to show compassion on this son. Let me take some notes. Let me take my suit jacket off and get my work clothes on. And what'd they do? They responded immediately. Why? Because compassion compelled them. Their son, if they don't do something, will die. They didn't wait around to parse it out. They acted. And they acted intuitively on what was right. We can get our heads so full of knowing what's right and sit on it that we're not moved anymore by it. Jesus knew the truth, proclaimed the truth, but He was moved by compassion. And Jesus says, pray that the Lord will thrust the church out of its building and engage in my harvest. I have souls needing to be harvested. We need to be thrust out with compassion for them. To say it positively, I think when God's compassion towards you as His child overwhelms you, when you take in your heart how God has been merciful and compassionate towards you in your misery, when that grips you, you will be thrust out into the harvest because you will look on other people and say, you know what? I see the misery you've caused in your own life, and guess what? I did the same thing. And God, He saved me out of it. You have compassion on them. Of all people, we are sinners, and we should be able to identify with the other sinners and the misery that sin causes. It's a positive way to say it. In a negative way to say it, I would say it this way. I think we don't evangelize because we have little of God's compassion in our hearts. I think we don't go, not because, well, I'm not an evangelist. I, I'm scared to talk. No. You wouldn't stand around if someone's getting crushed by a car. Say, well, I'm just not that strong. I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not a football player. I can't do anything. You would go and do what you can. I think we don't evangelize because really we have little of God's compassion in our hearts. When we think of evangelism solely as a doctrine or solely as a work, we're in trouble. When we think of it as a rescue mission of people whom God died for, who bear His image as we saw, who He Himself came out of heaven and glory and put that aside and walked among us miserable creatures, that should emotionally produce something in us as well as intellectually. So what's the main thrust of all this? A major aspect of proclaiming the gospel is the compassion that accompanies us when we preach it. Jesus preached the gospel, but he preached it with compassion on his hearts. He preached the good news to people who were suffering. And he would preach the gospel to them sometimes after doing something for them. 
I gave you the example of Mark 1.41 last week of the leper who falls down at Jesus' feet and says, if you're willing, you could heal me. And you remember before Jesus said a word what he did? The text says, moved with compassion, he reaches out and embraces the man. And then he says, I am willing. Be cleansed. That's the picture of evangelism right there. We can preach at them from a distance, even if we're standing face to face, because we don't let our hearts feel for them and where they're at. But when you open up your heart to be moved with pity, and you preach the gospel, there's no greater force than that. People could look at Jesus and say, man, how he loved Lazarus. And then their hearts would open up to what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me will never die. And they believe him. You see how the two are wedded together. So here's a question for you, and I don't want you to answer it out loud. Is your heart emotionally closed off to outsiders in the faith? When you examine yourself, do you feel for the lost? Are you moved in any way with compassion toward them? If not, I would suggest this. It's because your heart is closed off to the Lord right now. Because that closed off heart, a heart that can't feel for the lost, does not reflect the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ was always moved with pity, with compassion for the lost. Now to be sure, he would preach the gospel to everyone. And some he'd let walk away from the faith. He wouldn't compromise the truth in any way. But he was always moved with pity for them and compassion for them. If we can look at our heart and say, you know what, I don't really feel compassion for the lost and their misery. I would say you need to open up your heart to the Lord. And let him move emotionally in you. And biblically. Romans 2.4 says it this way. What brings the lost to repentance? It's the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that draws people to repentance. It's not severity. It's not looking down on them. I can't believe you started using drugs. I can't believe you slept around so much. It's kindness. It's Paul... Reed said to me last week, you know what, don't be surprised when the lost people behave like lost people. It's what they do. Jesus knew very well who we were in the depths of my sin. You know what? He still met me where I was at. And He still saved me. So what do we do to change our hearts if we find ourselves compassionless? Listen to this verse, Job twenty-two twenty-one: 21. Acquaint yourself with God. If you find a passionless heart inside you, you need to acquaint yourself with God. Don't just study this academically. God had a heart, and it moved Him. Come to know that. Come to experience that. Intimately know the Lord's love and compassion with you. Acquaint yourself with it. Let Him write His love and compassion on your heart first. And then you will say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, Christ died for me. I want to pair that real quick, show this to you. John 3.16, everyone knows the verse. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God's love encompasses the world. It is for the world. 
but it is also intensely individual. And that's what we read in Galatians 2.20. God so loved me. Not just the world. God is not like an impersonal force who just loves indiscriminately. We think of God's love kind of like the force in Star Wars. If we can just indiscriminately tap into it. No. God's love is universal, but it's particular too. He loved me. And He gave Himself for me. When you can say that with passion, you're on your way to becoming quite the evangelist. God's love compels us. I love what my favorite author, A.J. Gordon, said. He said, A love that is not specific and personal can never meet man's deeper spiritual cravings. A love which cannot, in its last analysis, be reduced to an individual regard for me, a pity for me, and a goodwill toward me, and a willingness to suffer and sacrifice for me, is not the love which my soul longs for and requires. In summary, compassionate evangelism, church, will be costly to you. What do I mean by that? It requires that you sacrifice your comfort. It's going to require that you sacrifice your ease. It's going to you're going to sacrifice your joy sometimes. I can tell you in pastoral ministry, and I was telling Ronnie this week, and Brian, I met with Brian this week, the ministry this week was one of those pastoral weeks where I had a variety of things that I dealt with pastorally, all the way from the death of a loved one to other things. Emotionally, it was all over the place. And pastoral ministry, I get to experience this week in and week out. You open your heart up as a pastor to come alongside your church and carry their burdens with them. And it's hard. It's draining on you. It's sacrificial for you. But you know what my role as a pastor is? It's to equip you to do the same thing. That's what Ephesians 4 says. Yet it's going to cost you if you're not willing to sacrifice your comfortability, your ease, your joy. We're not going to evangelize. We're not going to be compelled to go. Gordon goes on to say this, through the cross we see divine compassion or love yearning for the miserable. Through the cross we see divine forgiveness or love going out to the unworthy and sinful. Through the cross we see divine self-sacrifice or love giving itself for the lost. That's the picture of evangelism. To be an evangelist, you proclaim and you give yourself. You're being to it. Paul said, I become all things to all people. Why? So I might save some. I want to end with a story about a missionary. You might have heard this. I've used this before. His name was Damien de Wooster. He's a missionary from Belgium to the island of Malachi in Hawaii. That island, Malachi, was known as the Island of the Lepers. And his brother was originally going to be a missionary to this people. But unfortunately, he died before he could go. And, and so Damien didn't really want to go himself, but he loved his brother. He believed in what his brother was going to do for him. So he himself went and he ended up loving the people. He gave himself fully to the work. He built chapels. He built schools. He conversed. He lived with them. He loved them. He touched them. And as told in his biography, as 
One day as he was pouring a kettle of hot water into a cup, some of it swirled out and fell on his foot. And it took him a minute to realize he couldn't feel it. So out of fear, he took a little more of the hot water and poured it on his other foot. And he couldn't feel it, and he knew what happened immediately. So he went to the church that morning, as was his habit. He usually opened up the service saying, My fellow believers. And that morning he addressed his crowd differently. He said, My fellow lepers. You see, he came to see lepers are not not people. They're people with leprosy. And he himself had become one of them. When he died, the Belgian government exhumed his body and wanted to take it back to Belgium. And the people pleaded with the government, don't. He was one of us. He loved us and we love him, please. And they refused. And so they said this, well, will you at least let us cut off his right hand? and bury his hand here with us, because that was the hand that first touched us. And they let him. So when you go to Malachi, if you were to visit his grave, his body's in Belgium, but his hand is there with the people, because it was the hand that first reached out, proclaimed the gospel, but took their afflictions on him. That's the picture of evangelism. He won them over. Moved with pity, moved with compassion. What are we going to do, church? Go to the Lord right now in prayer. As we close, I'll invite Ronnie up. And I want you to ask the Lord to examine you. And if in your heart you just find an unwillingness in your heart to become this, I want you to confess that to the Lord. What if the Lord had been unwilling to come to you? Ask yourself, are you truly willing, are you truly going to be the person who is willing to accept the free grace of Christ and yet not turn around and give it to others who need it? It might cost you church. You might have to change your schedule weekly. You might have to sacrifice something you love in order to meet this obligation. Can you look at the lost, Christless world and not be moved with compassion? That's what's at stake. Because if that's where we're going to be as a church, we're just going to have a dead orthodoxy that we preach week in and week out. Christianity is a powerful force when truth is wove together with love. That's what moves us. Father God, I pray as we come before You today and we've examined in Your Scripture, Father, how not only did You know the truth of what we needed, that we needed a Savior. What compelled you to move toward us, to come to us, was your love, your compassion, your pity for us. Sin had estranged us from you, even though we bore your image, Lord. So what you're doing is coming back to us in a way that we can correspond as a man. And you're redeeming us, Lord, and you're doing it now through the church, not apart from the church. As Paul said, we are co-laborers with Christ and we compel, we plead, we are ambassadors for Him. Be reconciled to God. Father, move our hearts. Help us to feel pity for the lost. Understanding that sin has ruined them, it's estranged them from you, from others. 
Religion lets us down. Leaders let us down. Afflictions depress us and bring us low. And moved with compassion, Jesus came as a shepherd, offering not religion, but a relationship. Offering to those who would trust in you. You know what? I will pull you up out of the muck and mire. I will make you a new creature. I will put off this old garment of flesh and sin and make you a new person. One created in true righteousness and holiness. One created in my image. One who loves you. Who has compassion. Who carried my sorrows and bore my grief. And yet was without sin. Father, let the church be filled with truth and passion for it, Lord, that we might be moved to go. Do a work in our heart, Lord. We pray we're at your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.